If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Babak Hochat. He is the founder and CEO of Sentient Technology. He holds a PhD in the study of machine intelligence. Welcome to the show, Babak. Great to be here. Thank you. Let's start off with my, uh, my normal intro question, which is what is artificial intelligence? Uh, yes, what a question. Um, well, we know what artificial is. I think mainly the crux of this question is what is intelligence? Well, actually, actually, no, there's two different senses in which it's artificial. One is that it's not really intelligence. It's like artificial turf isn't really grass, that it just looks like intelligence, but it's not really. And the other one is, oh, no, it's really intelligent. It just, it just happens to be something we made. Yeah, it's the latter definition, I think, that's the consensus. And I'm saying this partly because there was a movement to call it machine intelligence, and there was other other names to it as well. But uh, I think um, artificial intelligence is certainly the emphasis is on the fact that as humans, we've been able to construct something that uh, gives us a sense of intelligence. And, you know, uh, the main question then is what is this thing called intelligence? And depending on how you answer that question, actual manifestations of AI have differed uh, through the years. Um, you know, there were there was a period in which uh, AI was considered, you know, if if it tricks you into believing that it is intelligent, then is it it's intelligent. So uh, if if that's the definition, then you know, um, uh, everything is fair, fair game. You can, you can cram the system with a whole bunch of rules. And, you know, back then we called them expert systems. And, you know, when you interact with these, uh, with these rule sets that are quite rigid, uh, it might give you a sense of intelligence. Then there was uh, a movement around actually building intelligence systems through machine learning and mimicking how nature, uh, you know, creates intelligence, um, neural networks, genetic algorithms, uh, some of the uh, approaches uh, amongst many others that, that were proposed and suggested reinforcement learning in its, in its uh, early form. Um, uh, but they would not scale. So the, part, the problem there was that they did actually show some very interesting um, uh, properties of, of, of intelligence, namely learning. Uh, but uh, but they didn't quite scale uh, for a number of different reasons, partly because we didn't quite um, have the algorithms down yet. Uh, also, the algorithms could not make use of uh, scalable compute and compute and and, uh, and uh, memory storage was was expensive. Then we switched to a redefinition in which we said, well, you know, intelligence is about these smaller problem areas. And that was, you know, the, the mid to late 90s uh, where, uh, you know, it was there was more interest in agenthood and agent-based systems and agent-oriented systems where the agent was tasked with 
a simplified environment to solve. And intelligence was abstracted into, you know, if we were tasked with a, a reduced set of tools to interact with the world and our world was much simpler than, than it is uh, right now, how would we operate? And that would be uh, the definition of intelligence. And those are agent-based systems. We've kind of swung back to machine learning-based uh, systems, um, partly because there has been some breakthroughs in the past, I would say, 10, 15 years um, in neural networks in, in learning how to scale this technology uh, and, uh, and, and, a, and an awesome rebranding of neural networks, uh, calling them deep learning. Uh, that uh, that has um, you know kind of uh, uh, the 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 field has flourished uh, on the back of that. Of course, uh, doesn't hurt that we have cheap uh, you know compute and storage uh, and lots and lots of data uh, to to feed these these systems. You know, one of the earlier things you you said is that we is that we tried to mimic how nature creates intelligence, and you listed three examples: neural nets. And then GANs, how we, you know, we evolve things, and then reinforcement learning. I, I, I would probably agree with the, um, uh, with the evolutionary algorithms, but do you really think? I thought we thought neural nets, like you said, it they don't really act like neurons act. I mean, it's a convenient metaphor, I guess. But do you really consider neural nets to be really derived from biology, or? or it's just an analogy from biology? Well, it was very much inspired by biology, very much so. I mean, models that we had of how we thought neurons and synapses between neurons and uh, uh, you know chemistry of the brain operates fueled this field, absolutely. Uh, but you know, these are very simplified versions of what uh, the brain actually does. And, um, you know, every day there's more learnings about how, you know, brain cell cells operate. And, you know, I was just reading an article yesterday about how RNA can capture memory uh, and, and, and uh, you know, how the basal ganglia actually also has a learning type of uh, function. It's not just the prefrontal cortex. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, complexity and depth in how the brain uh, operates that is completely lost when you simplify it. And, and, you know, so absolutely we're inspired definitely, but, but this is not a model of the brain uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So where do you, and, and we'll, we'll get off the kind of the definitions here in just a second, but you gave kind of a, a history of how we think about it, but when you boil it down, what do you think intelligence is? Uh, for practical reasons, I define intelligence as facets of human and, and uh, biological intelligence that we can capture, model, and make use of. Uh, and typically, they manifest themselves as systems in which we describe the problem and expect the system to, to come up with a solution. So there's some level of learning and abstraction that we expect from these systems that we don't expect from, for example, programmed or engineered uh, based uh, uh, systems, uh, but you know, I struggled right now. As you as you can see, I used three or four sentences just to get to the meaning across. It's a very slippery meaning, and partly because intelligence describes an emergent behavior 
of many parts, uh, be it in nature or com complex systems, and of course, the brain being one of the most complex that, that we know. And because it's an emergent behavior, it's very difficult to pinpoint an exact definition for it. We, we're faced, we're reduced to defining it based on its manifestations and how it operates and interacts with the world. But, but the programs we have right now are programmed and engineered, and they're deterministic, and they run, you know, they're, they're, they're as dead as fried chicken, right? They, I, I was just reading about Not, the, this animal behavior that's this fixed animal behavior where there are these geese that um, if they find one of the eggs has fallen out of the nest, they've got this way that they can move it back into the nest. And if you pull that egg out, they just keep doing it as if there's an egg there. They're still moving their head. And all, like this sure. the egg. I mean, they are running a program that like we run programs. So where do you see emergence happening in the systems we have today? Well, in an evolutionary system, that very behavior was an emergent behavior that uh, in some way or other through generations helped the geese survive. In the brain itself or in our uh, a neural network um, based, you know, deep learning systems, um, you know, the behavior of these systems, in many cases, these systems are black box systems. The behavior is not engineered. Uh, you know, we give it the input, we give it the expected output, and it makes abstractions that capture the behavior. We then throw it input that it's never seen before with the expectation that the behavior is going to key off of the abstractions that it's done and will be within the realm of what we expect. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of, one of the key um, triggers for the latest uh, uh, boom in, 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 in interest in AI was a paper that Google published, Google Brain published, I think now three years ago, um, where they said, yeah, we've, uh, we've trained these deep networks uh, and they can identify cats in, uh, in uh, images captured from YouTube. I mean, on the surface, big deal, right? I mean, you know, uh, so what? You, you know, you've, you've, you've been able to do some pattern recognition and you know what a cat is. But when you actually read the paper, the fact is that nobody labeled the data as whether an image has a cat in it or does not have a cat in it. This was autoencoding, which means that what they asked the system to do is take an image, compress it in a lossy way. So, you know, lose information in that compression, then decompress it. And the value function, the fitness function, the loss function was how close is the decompressed version of the image to the original image? That's how they trained this thing. After the fact, they said, let's look at these nodes in the deep network and see what has it identified, what has it found in there. And they realized that, oh, it can distinguish between images that have cats and don't have cats in it. Therefore, it has abstracted the concept of a cat. Nobody taught it the concept of a cat but it had abstracted that out. Then they thought, wow, this is interesting. You know, there's a lot of people and women, uh, particularly in, in um, uh, YouTube images. Let's see if it's understood that. And lo and behold, it did. So it's like after the fact interrogating of the model to see whether or not it has actually identified a concept. And it had. And then they got all excited and thought, you know, maybe it has identified cars as well. There are a lot of YouTube uh, videos with cars in them. Uh, well, to their disappointment, it had not. So 
uh, yeah, which, which brings us to some of the um, weaknesses of this approach. We do not know what it's learning and what it's, what it's not learning. And so we're still in, uh, you know, in very controlled environments. We know how to build these systems and use them. But in some cases, it's difficult to understand. But to your original question, is this something mechanical that we just programmed into the system? No. There's, I mean, that's the fascinating thing about these learning-based uh, systems is that the learning is what they do. That's why it's so exciting that AlphaGo, uh, you know, beats the world champion in Go, or and then later AlphaZero was able to supersede, uh, you know, the 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 um, uh, the uh, program-based, uh, tree search-based systems for for playing chess, uh, because the basis for what uh, um, DeepMind did was machine learning, at least uh, a big part of that uh, combined with tree search. So uh, it's machine learning that's, you know, exceeding the state of the art from humans. If you took, though, if, if you took those, if you took that system of Google's that you were describing so eloquently and you, you ran it again and gave it the exact same images in the exact same order, it would come up with the exact same instance, right? the exact same conclusion. And you, if you did that a million times, it would come up with the exact same instance. The system, yeah. itself, the system itself is as mechanistic as, as, a, as a wind-up clock. I mean, just because you can wind this clock up and it does all these, these like permutations within permutations and, and wow, you, you, you can see the whole galaxy spinning around on its axis, doesn't mean there's anything going on other than you know, wind it up and watch it go. Well, yes, we're getting into philosophy here a little bit. Um, well, let me ask you a different question then. Well, I mean, just 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 oh, to finish off on that though. I mean, sorry. I mean, I think I think I think the same question could be asked about the brain too. So, I mean, then you're in this question of you know whether we have intentionality or not, and so forth. And I, I think you'll get lost in the philosophy of it. At the end of the day, what's important is 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 it manifesting behavior that is familiar to us as being intelligent. Um, but then one more philosophy question and I'll, I'll, I'll move on. But do you believe, so computers can only do math, right? Like that's what they do really well. They do math really fast. Do you, do you personally think that all intelligence is reducible to math? I personally do believe that, um, uh, that, that all intelligence is, uh, can be reduced to um, so numbers. There's, there's nothing. Uh, there is there is there is a class of thought that that does not believe that. I think I think it's very much in, uh, based in our in our need for you know applying some sort of mis mystique in in the operation of the brain. Uh, there's there's some science behind that as well, where they believe, for example, that quantum fluctuations. Uh, drive the way creativity takes place in the brain and 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 uh, some of the decisions that we make which which uh, in computers we have to make use of random functions which are not truly random they're still a function that that behaves random but it's not truly random so there are some distinctions made at that level uh, again I think a, from a practical standpoint it it doesn't really that distinction is is really not material I can't help but to notice that uh, on my on my display that 
probably the conference room, I guess, you're calling in from, is named Goodall. Is that, uh, is there also an Escher and a Bach, or is that uh, a reference to some other aspect of Goodall's life? One of the things that I, I really like about him is is, is his incompleteness theorem, and right. that, and that uh, and, and which 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 Turing also worked on, and Turing is the father of many things, including not just computing, but also uh, you know neural networks and genetic algorithms. Uh, fascinating how these guys uh, thought. You know, you look at you you look at on the surface the the groundbreaking paper that Turing wrote is about incompleteness, and but but the way he did it. And what he invented in, in uh, just as as the device to to make his proof happen, you know what is now called the Turing machine, um, is is the basis for computing uh, and and how we think about what's computable and what's not computable. And clearly, in his later work, he believed that intelligence is computable. So you know, going back to the source, even though you know. There is this incompleteness theorem that he also, uh, um, you know, contributed to. Uh, you know, he does believe that it's computable. Right, but of course, there are there are problems Turing machines couldn't solve. Right, like the halting problem. Um, that that even that device doesn't have. Like like there's not necessarily an algorithm to do everything, though, is there? The halting problem is is the way they. Uh, well, the Turing machine can compute anything computable. Right, right. Right? But not, and but not everything is computable. Uh, yes, exactly. So that's the definition of, yeah. So you are, you founded a company called Sentient Technology. Yes. Uh, I assume, you know, Sentient is one of those interesting words that's often misused, like in science fiction. No, yeah, yeah. So sentience means it can sense something. But so you didn't start a company called Sapient Technology. You you did one called Sentient Technology. Tell me about naming that, and then tell me about its mission. Uh, yeah, we we started off being called Genetic Finance, actually, which is not a very sexy name, admittedly. Um, uh, and you know, uh, the company was uh, when when we started about. Uh, 10 and a half, 11 years ago, about using scaled AI and evolutionary computation and trading in the stock market, and hence the name. Um, when we decided that uh, you know, we would like to spin off the trading piece, the, the hedge fund, and um, use the technology itself in other areas as well, was when we needed a, a better name. And I personally like the sound of uh, sentient, as a name, sentient a, dot AI, it, it, it's a really cool combination. Uh, I, my uh, fascination with this word is um, uh, its older meaning, which was uh, what how it was used in the 1800s. Uh, back when uh, the popular consensus among scientists was that logic can, in fact, uh, model everything. Um, you know, it's because before the whole incompleteness uh, uh, theorem and so forth, um, and uh, and back then sentience was referred to as everything else that the brain can do. So you know, if you take away uh, the logic part of thinking, uh, then what you're you're left with, which is the delta of that, 
that makes you a, a sentient being is what's interesting. And, and to me, that's, you know, again, um, you know, a, uh, uh, sort of a, a tip of the hat to emergence, which is what makes AI fascinating. Uh, you know, for those of us who work in AI, we work for those moments when the AI is actually surprising us. It's learned something or it's made an abstraction that we were not expecting. And so what is the mission of sentient technology? To make a better world through AI. We do believe that AI is, uh, has ubiquitous applicability. Uh, we're very practical minded about it. We build products using AI. We don't have a professional services team. We do not charge for, you know, we don't have a consulting business. We actually build products. Building products means that the product has to stand on its own merit, not the fact that it has this magical AI behind it. So the AI needs to provide the differentiation that allows the product to disrupt a certain market. Or, uh, and, uh, you know, we, we believe we've done that with trading uh, and sentient investment management, which we've spun off, and we're doing that in uh, full funnel digital marketing. And we're building, uh, uh, we're, we're building products there that allow you to uh, optimize adaptively your website, your mobile experience, the journey, all the way from the top of the funnel, which is your ads, the bid and budget management, and the um, you know, audience selection, as well as the look and feel, all the way to the conversion, to email remarketing, and so forth. So that's kind of the journey uh, that, that a user goes through, and we, we believe that AI uh, can orchestrate that whole process and and uh, improve it. We've used the core AI, which is called LEAF, Learning Evolutionary AI Framework, in other uh, areas as well, ranging from cybersecurity, cyber agriculture, healthcare, uh, more in sort of research projects, collaborations with academia. Uh, but more recently, we've also been uh, uh, exceeding the exceeding the state of the art uh, in uh, in uh, AI related benchmarks uh, by a process I I kind of tongue in cheek I call it cheating. You know, if you have the state of the art deep network for say uh, the Omniglot uh, uh, benchmark or um, the state of the art uh, recurring uh, deep networks uh, like LSTM uh, for the language modeling. Uh, benchmark, just take that and evolve it. And uh, evolving the, not just the hyperparameters, but also the uh, construction, the engineering of that deep network will improve it because you're using evolutionary computation. You can improve it in several different objectives, not just one. You can make it better on performance scale. You can make it smaller, faster, uh, a number of different uh, areas. And uh, so that's an area where we're doing a lot of research and some collaboration that, that looks quite fascinating. Um, well, your website has a, has a bold claim, like it proclaims when you get there. It says, we built the world's most powerful distributed, distributed AI platform. Yeah. So, that, justify that claim and tell us about that platform. At its peak, we uh, harvested compute capacity from third parties. This were, these were idle cycles. You can think of it as, you know, I don't know if you remember SETI at home or folding at home. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so we did that. Uh, we, we harvested this from uh, uh, different 
compute sources, you know, idle cycles in in um, uh, in uh, data centers, uh, all the way to internet cafes and game centers in Asia. Uh, at its peak, we had a single uh, AI system uh, running on about two million CPUs. Uh, we also trained um, uh, and evolved deep networks on uh, more than four thousand. Uh, GPU machines spread across uh, many sites. Uh, and yeah, I, I, that's, I think, one of the largest, if not the largest, distributed. Uh, so give us, a, give us a success story. Tell us a story of a problem that you applied this platform to and the solution and how much better it was. Like, tell us a story. Sure. Obviously, we've done this in trading, but I can't share too much there. But in digital marketing, I can, I can certainly share that. You know, the state of the art, for example, in improving um, a website design is to do A/B testing. So you get a bunch of designers together, and they come up with a new design that's design B, and then you redirect your traffic to design B as you're still running your incumbent design, design A. You do that for a while until you have statistical significance, and if B is better than A, you pick B. Uh, unfortunately, the ratio that's quoted a lot in the industry is only one out of seven of these A-B test results and B being better than A. So what we did there is we actually evolve not just a single page, but the funnel of pages that constitute the user journey on a website um, and allow many degrees of freedom. You know, you want to change the header, the image and the background, the placement of various different widgets the call to action, anything you want to do. The, so the designer now has full artistic freedom on the various different pages. And we then adapt and evolve that against live traffic that's coming to the site, which means that, you know, in one case, I can, I can tell you one of our customers um, uh, above media, they uh, ran this for eight weeks. And um, the search space size, which is kind of moderate to small by our own standards, was 380,000 different possible designs, as opposed to two in A-B testing. After only eight weeks, they were able to increase their conversion rates by, I think it was in the order of 46 or 47%. Um, so that's a, that's a success story right there. Uh, now, a system like that would, will consistently adapt and improve. So you can actually run this in campaign mode or, or just permanently. Uh, and that's the level of disruption that we're bringing to, to uh, just this one small case, which is A-B testing, improving your website or, or mobile um, uh, funnel design. Just let this thing run permanently and adapt to you know, the traffic that's coming in, the various different users that are using your system, the changes that you might make or various uh, new uh, products that you might now want to sell or uh, whatever, that's fine. We'll just adapt to that and constantly improve it. So is that, you, I, you, you had said a minute ago that you don't have a professional services department that you make products and then people use those products, but these, these sound like specific applications you're doing for specific customers. It's no, in fact, that's, that's the funny, it's, it's, it's good that you bring it up. Um, this is just a couple of lines of JavaScript that our customers include in the top of their web page. Uh, 
uh, everything is hosted by them. And then there's an editor that's WYSIWYG, and they, you know, it subsumes their website, for example, and it puts iframes around it. Our customers use it. The designers at our customers or their agencies are the ones that are actually using this. We, we set them up, and, and they're off and running. We're not doing uh, professional services for them. Gotcha. So what's that product called? It's called Sentient Ascend. And, uh, you know, you can go to ascend.ai, which is, which is the website which uh, is going to be talking all about, and we have some case studies there and so forth. So what would be your thing maybe you're not working on because you, you don't have a product to build yet, but what would you love to bring all of your learning and experience to bear on? Give me a big meaty world problem. World problem. Okay. So, um, uh, I want to talk about cyber agriculture, which is a world problem, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, growing food, growing plants in controlled environments is now very much doable. And there are many different, uh, you know, companies and research uh, academia that, that are working on this. The one that we worked with is Open Agriculture at MIT Media Lab. We did a little um, research project with them. But I, I would really like to see that be industrialized and, and out there. As a startup, it's hard for us to you know, be doing too many things at the same time. But ho hopefully someday we'll get to that. Um, but here's, here's the problem statement. Um, you know, we can now take all the context away from growing stuff. Uh, you know, you can grow things. These are container sized greenhouses, which is a misnomer because there's no light coming in from the outside. There's no interaction with the outside world whatsoever, other than a power cable coming into this thing. Um, it's hydroponic. So you're growing stuff essentially in water, uh, and you have many actuators and sensors that allow you to make changes to the environment in which these plants are growing, uh, ranging from you know, the minerals in the water, the humidity in the air, the amount of light or spectrum of light that you're shining at what time, uh, and so forth. And um, uh, you, know, you, can even, you can even control the time where you inject stressors into the water. These are half-dead bacteria that kind of prompt the, the, the plant to, to uh, uh, you know, produce more volatiles to defend itself. And by virtue of that, it becomes more tasty. So you, you, know, you have a lot of control over this environment. But here's the problem. We don't know how to grow things if you take away the context. So, you know, humans have been growing things for thousands of years now, but if you take the context, the latitude, longitude, the weather, the soil type, you take those things away, we don't know how to grow things. We don't know what recipe actually works. In fact, we're even lucky to be able to grow things, you know, not have things die in that kind of environment. So have a recipe that allows us to survive a plant uh, in an environment like that, let alone have it thrive. So that is a problem for AI. Um, uh, and, you know, if you, if you actually had systems that were energy efficient and were able to grow things, uh, you know, non-GMO, GMO, uh, in these sorts of environments anywhere in the world, then not only are you tackling world hunger, you're also tackling, you know, global warming because you're not, uh, you know, you're not transporting uh, all, uh, all these, this, this food and plants and so forth around and siloing them and putting ozone on them and so forth. So there's implications are huge. Uh, so what we did is we actually uh, um, did this for basil. We modeled 
how basal grows. And against the model, we evolved using evolutionary computation and our core uh, leaf technology, we evolved recipes for growing basal. Basil is quote unquote fast in its growth. It, it's six to eight weeks from seedling to full plant. And um, this whole process of creating a model, having a hypothesis uh, as to what recipe for growth of the plant will maximize, for example, the fresh weight and the taste of the plant, and then um, you know, trying that out in the actual uh, you know, greenhouse, uh, and then bringing that back in to refine the model, that is called black box optimization. We ran this process for a few months, and we had some very fascinating uh, results from that one we kind of know it's like you know AI reinventing the wheel which was that you know the, the larger the plant the less tasty we kind of know that like you know these tiny tomatoes are tastier and <laughs> juicier uh, we, we kind of know that uh, but what we didn't know was that everybody thought that basil needs at least six weeks of uh, sorry six hours of sleep every 24 hours in other words six hours of darkness at least every 24 hours but this was we uh, this was um, a variable in in the model and the ai very quickly found that uh, you know if you shine light on the basil 24 7 during a certain period of its growth it thrives and nobody knew that uh, so so the ai actually not only was able to uh, replicate uh, and, and produce reasonable uh, results, it was actually uh, able to advance the science of agriculture in this particular case. How do you, you say there's, you know, no considerations from lat long, but, but presumably the temperature of the environment around the container <laughs> affects the inside of the container, doesn't it? No, that's also completely controlled. The temperature is controlled. Uh, everything, there's so many degrees of freedom in this thing. It's just crazy. And for every actuator, they have, I think, two sensors. They have multiple cameras in there that takes photos. It's a wealth of data that's being produced every time you grow something in there. And, you know, that's, that's where AI thrives. So uh, tell me who, again, who is heading up or, or where could somebody learn more about that? So of course on our website, you can, uh, you can look at our uh, research blog and there are entries around uh, our cyber agriculture work, which is the AI side of what we do. There's a paper, I think if not published yet uh, coming out soon, I think we have it on archive already uh, on the scientific side of what we've done there. If you go to open ag, um, uh, which is uh, through the um, uh, uh, the uh, help me out here the um, uh, MIT Media Lab sorry uh, uh, MIT Media Lab website if you go to Open Ag or just search for Open Ag uh, uh, online um, it's fascinating what they, those guys are doing and in fact, in fact everything they do from the uh, specs for these what they call food computers these containers from the specs to the actual recipes that that we helped uh, produce are open and available on their blog so you said you're an optimist about this technology and its power to make the world better and I I'm I'm in that camp as well uh, but I'm going to give you four topics in the on the other side of that column four problem areas I want you to pick one of them and, and just talk, talk us through your perspective on it. 
So one of them is the effect of AI on privacy, that, it, that once you have good voice recognition and image recognition, every camera, every phone call, we're no longer lost in an anonymous pool of data, like everything can be logged and mapped and modeled and, and so forth. The second one is the effect on warfare. Um, uh, you know, obviously, machines making kill decisions and lowering the political cost of warfare and all of that. The third is the ability of AI to be used to attack infrastructure, you know, to, to bring down electrical grids and, and whatnot. And then the fourth is, broadly speaking, uh, security, the ability of people to attack maybe non-state actors, to attack uh, banks and steal stuff and hurt, you know, you know bust open encryption and all of the rest. So again, that's privacy, warfare, infrastructure, and security. What of those keeps you awake at night? <laughs> As an optimist, I... Well, well feel free to tell us why <laughs> we shouldn't worry about each of those too. That would be great. Oh, absolutely we should. I think, you know, in all of those, first of all, uh, technology is interchangeable with AI. I don't think, I don't think we should... We should uh, simply, um, you know, say that this is a problem that comes with AI. Uh, this is a problem that comes with misuse of technology as a whole. And uh, so, uh, you know, that, that's the way I would be looking at it. Absolutely. But you, every time you're talking about AI, you keep using words like understand and learn. And those aren't words I use to describe the sprinkler system in my car. Or, I mean, my sprinkler system in my yard or uh, sure. any other piece of technology I know, you're talking about a technology that you're, you're applying these, these human-like adjectives to its mental capabilities. And that sure. is, I mean, that's like a, a phase shift, right? That's like, that's like the difference between 33-degree water and 31-degree water, like something materially different happens. And so to just say, well, it's, these are the same problems we've always had and AI doesn't really change them. I mean, do you really think that? If, if you think that, then then AI's power to transform the world for good is equally impaired. Uh, no, I think, again, the same analogy holds. You know, technology is inherently neutral. AI is inherently neutral. And it's, it's, it depends on how we um, uh, delegate uh, responsibility to it, if that can be done, uh, and, uh, you know, how we regulate and how we use it or abuse it uh, is, is the question, right? I mean, nu nuclear uh, power versus nuclear bombs is a, is a great example of that. No AI there, but yeah, very, very scary. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, if, if it's abuse, it's, again, it's a neutral, inherently neutral uh, system. Uh, te technology is neutral inherently. Now, uh, but, but let, me, let me say this, the risk is really... Uh, that we became, become complacent and we abdicate our responsibility towards technology. Uh, I think that's the main risk. And it, we've seen manifestations of that beyond even the four categories that you just, just mentioned, like, you know, in the election that happened in uh, 2016. And it's, you know, we're, we're in the US, so we see that first and foremost, but it has happened in, in a number of other countries as well. That this is, uh, you know, an abuse of a technology, um, uh, not necessarily through AI, but by virtue of, you know, the end users abdicating their responsibility towards the use of technology. Uh, um, 
and you know, the, being sort of reactive to what is thrown at them as being the absolute truth. Uh, you know, it, we have a choice, for example, when it comes to news, to either go back to a world where we get our news late and through only limited sources, or a world in which there are many, many news sources available to us. But in the latter case, if we really feel that's our you know, right to, to go there, it increases our responsibility as to uh, you know, how we would select from those sources available to us and how we make decisions uh, with respect to them versus being reactive to whatever is fed to us as being you know, the absolute truth. And I think I'm using this as, a, as an analogy. Um, uh, I, I think it holds for a lot of what we do. If, if we want self-driving cars to reduce deaths on the road, and they will do that uh, very clearly, you know, injuries and deaths and accidents are going to reduce significantly. Um, you know, are we prepared to abdicate responsibility to those who build these systems as far as the, the life death death decisions that have to be made? Uh, or are we going to come up with a, um, a framework for how ethically to be making these sorts of decisions? You know, these, these are questions that I think are not being asked and not being answered. And, and uh, you know, we're just kind of sitting there saying, well, technology is so complex and therefore we'll just let it do whatever it wants to us. It doesn't help that we're also benefiting from technology in a very free manner, right? You know, Facebook is free. Yeah, you know, much of what you do on well, your cell phone is free. It's only free if you value your time at zero, but go ahead. Exactly. No, I mean, that's, that's, that, but, but, but that, that is true, but because it's free, you also kind of feel like whatever comes at you, you'll just take, right. And you, you'll be reactive to it versus proactive. I, I, I think that's, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on all of that. And that's, you know, the price of liberty is, is eternal vigilance. And, and I'm with you that, that technology is neutral metallurgy. You can build, you can build plows or you can build swords. And, but, but you have to say, or maybe you don't, that, that technology and its, and its basic ability to multiply human effort means that as technology advances, you get more asymmetry. And now you could have, with genetic engineering, a, a small lab of people make a more, a more deadly kind of smallpox and bring it back. Whereas in 1804, uh, you may have had somebody dump a goat in a, whale, a well and poison the water, that technology increases our ability to affect the lives of a billion people for better or worse. So all the people in the world, you know, fact-checking what they're reading doesn't, doesn't stop a small band of bad actors from using these technologies to incur enormous amounts of damage on the world. Is there is right. that an intractable problem and we just have to say, yeah, that's the that's the price of the time in which we live, or the genie's out of the bottle, or or whatever metaphor you want to use. Uh, right. I mean, but you know, I think I think what are our options here, right? Uh, I, I don't think we can turn back back the clock and and and, so and go back. Out of the bottle. Yeah, yeah. The genie is out of the bottle, yeah. and so okay, if that's the case, and uh, you know, which means that again, there's more responsibility on our shoulders uh, to to. Um, 
to have the institutions that can control these things uh, and and um, have a level of uh, regulation and control and uh, you know a, a direction uh, around these things. So I, you know, at the end of the day, it comes back to our tools. Our tools are what define us as humans and allow us to change the world. And if the world is going in a direction that we're not happy, uh, it's the tools that will help us correct that. And, you know, AI being part of that tool set, uh, science being part of that tool set. Uh, the last thing we want to do is just to, to let it go off and organically just, you know, do the harm that it, it, it's doing. So, yeah. When you hear high-profile individuals, and, and you know who they all are, uh, say that, you know, we're going to make an AGI and then it's going to become a super intelligence and then it's going to turn on us all and, and we're doomed, we're doomed. Uh, what's your reaction to that? I'm very skeptical, uh, just simply because I know the state of the art in AI and I think it's, we, we're you know, still... I, I'm, I'm with you in that and virtually every single guest on this show, and they're all people who are, they're either practitioners or they're at university, I mean, they're, they're deep in it. They all say the same thing. and and as do I. But my question is, what's the disconnect? Why are seemingly very intelligent people, why do they worry about that? Uh, you know, if you if you look at the profile of these folks, they, they're really not, uh, with, with all due respect to them, I, I don't think they're actually that um, involved in AI uh, at this level. But I mean, that, that, that aside, I think uh, this all started with superintelligence and Nick's, Nick, Nick Bostrom's yeah. book uh, perpetrating this, this idea. Uh, it's easy to predict the distant future. Uh, it's very hard to predict the near-term future. And it's hard to, to place a, uh, a, a point in time in which something will happen. You know, whether or not we have the capability to build an autonomous system that uh, uh, you know manifests all the facets of intelligence that, that that we have and is more capable than we are. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a logical, uh, you know, uh, extension of where we are. Um, is it going to be human-like? No, I, I, I really don't think it is because it's a very, very specific configuration of the brain evolved over thousands of years for humans uh, that is almost next to impossible to, to uh, replicate. Uh, so I don't, I don't think, I mean, it will disappoint as far as being human-like, but whether or not it will have the capacity to supersede us in decision-making and so forth, maybe, how far are we from that? Many, many, many decades or even centuries. I think we're, we're very far from that with our current technology. And therefore, I think we should be worrying about more immediate things uh, uh, than AI. I think, the, I think the amount of money that, 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 that than AGI, I think the, the amount of money and, and uh, thought and worry that's going into that is completely disproportionate, very much fueled by our uh, science fiction conception of where AI can go versus where it is right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, th there's a phrase for it, which is called reasoning from fictional evidence, which is, I think, what... Uh, yeah, I, I all, believe we're that. All, we're right. all susceptible to it. I mean, myself yeah. included, you can't watch all those stories. And, and 
And I don't think it's conspiracy, right? I think that, you know, I'm not going to pay $9.50 to go see everything's perfectly normal in the future. Nothing bad's going to, you know, I mean, you know, you want, you want something. <laughs> of course. Um, well, let me but then, you, you know, just, just on that topic real quick, I don't know if you saw Ex Machina, but I mean, you, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the joke I make about that one is this genius guy built these androids that are completely human-like. He forgot to put an off switch on them. I, I mean, know, just, just one word, right? A safe word, right? <laughs> uh, he has to pick up the wrench to go after it. world, don't you think they would have put one big red button that just... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, come on, man. The whole thing just, like, shuts down. How could down. you forget that? Um, <laughs> It's also, it's also like in Star Trek, too. You know, they seem to have forgotten how to make a fuse, you know? You know <laughs> exactly. One thing hits the ship and it all blows up because they haven't they don't have, like, a fuse that gets flipped, a breaker, a circuit breaker that's like, ah, oh, I flipped the breakers, all the lights went out. It's like it immediately goes to the whole ship explodes. Exactly. So, you know, though, I used to be really annoyed by dystopian movies because I have to go see them all because everybody asks me about them. And then I, I read... <laughs> Maybe Frank Herbert say that um, sometimes the purpose of science fiction is to keep the future from happening. Hmm. And, uh, and to your earlier comments about, you know, we just have to be vigilant. I think maybe that amount of the dystopia, just, you know, that these things can be misused. I would agree. Yeah. So let's flip, let's flip to the optimism. Uh, let's put our rose colored glasses back on and let's talk about the bottom billion, the, the people in this world that seem to, to be kind of the most intractable problem that we and that we all face, and and, and frankly, uh, the most you know that is not to our credit that somehow we live in, in a world of, of plenty, and yet there's a billion people that live on you know half the world still lives on three dollars a day or less. How do you think these technologies, which increase productivity in the developed world where they're applied, how do you think these technologies help the bottom billion and 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 are we helped by the fact that you know everybody has a smartphone now and that that will be a conduit to these technologies or how do you see somebody in a really really disadvantaged place a mary curie or a leonardo da vinci born into abject poverty how do you see them being able to achieve their potential in a world of the future Absolutely, that 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 human potential and uh, is is huge and untapped. And I think technology is reaching out, uh, maybe not to the folks that are living uh, at that abject poverty, you know, below three three bucks, um, but it it is trickling down. I mean, uh, the access to technology, access to education. Uh, is is just amazing what you can learn just by watching YouTube videos or or taking online courses. You can take you know when it comes to AI, you can take Androing's you know machine learning course anywhere in the, in the world using a single you know cell phone. <laughs> um, uh, and um, you know these technologies are becoming cheaper and more accessible. The internet itself is is uh, reaching out and you know. Uh, uh, and um, it's it's to the benefit of uh, a lot of these corporations to to uh, make this wider and wider scale uh, uh, availability. Um, so so there's the educational impact, there's the job impact, and the fact that as a product productivity tool, uh, these systems can be used by by folks, mom and pop shops that 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 uh, you know have an idea and want to do something. Uh, you know, uh, 
are in a better place to do that if a loan for, by, by things like micro uh, loans and microfinancing and so forth that are um, uh, augmented by these sorts of technologies and communication-based systems, uh, online payments, you know, the list goes on. Um, uh, and then you have the uh, other side of this, which is how can technologies such as AI help uh, improve the uh, state of living of, of um, these folks. Uh, I talked about agriculture, you know, uh, we didn't have time to talk about healthcare, but that's there too. If you're optimizing a system for price, for accuracy, uh, for um, you know, minimize, minimizing risk, for example, from intervention, you just take that and use it in a lot of these areas, including healthcare, agriculture, these areas that I just mentioned, and you can only improve uh, uh, these these models. Hopefully, someday we will use them in in social sciences as well, <laughs> um, uh, and and you know to promote democracy and 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 the rule of law and you know help help build uh, you know help pull these societies into uh, into what we know now. I mean, there's there's we've seen this happen time and again where you know they. These societies, these countries hit a certain stage, and from there on, you know, if they follow the blueprint, they're out in the you know second world and first world and 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 an economic giant. It's just a, it's not happening primarily, I think, because of lack of education, lack of uh, reaching these folks, and and we see a lot of that. I mean, yeah, we've hit a lot of bumps in the road in the past few years, but things like the uh, you know, Arab Spring and 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 uh, awakening uh, that was fueled by things like you know the, what was called the Twitter revolution or the Facebook revolution and so forth. Um, that's very real and it's still there. You know, it gets um, beaten down and you know that's that's just the nature of the beast. It's two steps forward, one step back. But I think it, uh, you know, again, the optimist in you and I, I think we we can see the fact that there is a path here. And technology can definitely help get us get us to that next level. All right. Well, that's a great place to leave it. I see where uh, at the top of the hour. Can you tell us if people want to follow you or your company? Give us a couple of URLs or Twitter handles and or, and the rest. Uh, sure. The company is uh, Sentient.ai is the website. Uh, as I said, our digital marketing product is under Ascend.ai, and you can reach both and either. A lot of the scientific papers and, and breakthroughs and so forth also are reachable through our website. My own Twitter handle is Bobak at Work, B-A-B-A-K-A-T-W-O-R-K. Uh, the uh, Sentient AI Twitter handle is also out there. Uh, welcome comments. Welcome uh, people uh, you know, friending me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, again, Bob, I could work uh, is, is the username. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been great talking to you. This is, uh, this is wonderful. Some really interesting topics we covered here. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show. Pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.